Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. If you want to open up your copy of Scripture with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We'll be continuing our study through this great chapter, which, to be honest, has quickly become one of my favorite chapters through the Gospel of John. I looked this morning. We started the Gospel of John all the way back in May of last year. So it's been almost a year and a half since we've been in this Gospel. We've taken a couple of breaks. Um, but that's one of the great benefits of going verse by verse through the Bible like we have is we get to see the depths of God's Word. We got to touch on a lot of different subjects. And in this chapter in particular, we've seen Jesus make these definitive statements about who He is and what He came to do. In John chapter 10, He makes these great statements. He comes out and says, I am the good shepherd. I am the shepherd of the sheep. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. That all the other um, false shepherds that had come before, they had led the people astray. They led the people of Israel astray. And He has come as the good shepherd. And He's not just the good shepherd that protects His people, but as we saw a couple weeks ago, He is the good shepherd that will eventually lay down His own life for His people. That where the shepherds of that day, the false shepherds, they would see a wolf coming and run away. Our Lord is not like that. He lays down His own life for the sake of His flock, of the, for the sake of the sheep. And we'll see today that we are coming near the end of our Lord's public ministry. That John, even though we're not even halfway through John's gospel, we're right about halfway, this is about where Jesus ends his public ministry in John's gospel. And the rest of John's gospel will be basically the final sign of Jesus' public ministry, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And then we'll go to the upper room discourse where we see this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. And so as we come to the end, we feel the temperature in the room start to rise a little bit. And maybe you've noticed that as you've gone through John chapter 10 with us, that not only is our Lord's statements about who he is and what he came to do becoming more and more clear, more and more prominent and prevalent, these great mysteries about the Trinity and his divinity, but we've also seen the antagonist and the hostility grow between the Jews of that day and the religious leaders. That they don't like these statements of our Lord. They don't like these claims that He's making to be the Messiah, the Christ, and also these claims that He's making to be the God of the universe, the Son of God. And we see that in their unbelief, in the darkness of their unbelief, by the end of this passage today, they're going to be wanting to pick up stones to stone Him. <laughs> that the one that the Old Testament promised and prophesied would come, the Savior of the world, they want to stone him. They want to put him to death. They don't like what he's saying. They want to kill Christ. And so we see in this passage the darkness of their unbelief, the, the, the blindness that these people are showing to be true. In their unbelief, we are seeing that revealed as we go through this passage today. And we'll see today that Jesus not only reveals the ultimate reason for their unbelief, but he also gives us the reason why anyone believes at all. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to see some great promises from our Lord, some great comfort for God's saints, and we'll see the eternal security that his people have despite the many trials of this light, despite the many tribulations that his people will go through. They will be held, they will be held fast, 
because they are in the hands of the triune God, that God is not only able to preserve his people, we'll see this morning that he does, and he promises to do that. So I'm going to read our passage for you this morning. Um, I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's word. We'll be reading John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. And at that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand." My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you um, this Lord's day, this day of worship and rest, and we come before you, Lord, um, we come to your word now, your holy and infallible word, your revelation that you have given to us, your people, that we might hear your word this morning, hear you speaking through your word to us, your people, and that we might see the gospel of Christ this morning, the promises that Christ has purchased and is actively carrying out in his people. And we pray that you would give us great hope this morning, great comfort in your promises. And even as we see the darkness of unbelief and the blindness of those that would reject your gospel, we see the glory of Christ in revealing these things to the weakest, to the, the most frail, to those that had no good in them, Lord. And so we pray this morning that you would reveal these things to us, that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning to see the gospel of Christ And we know that this is impossible, that no words I can say can do anything apart from the power of your Spirit, making them effectual to the souls of your people. So we pray this morning you would work in the lives of us this morning, that you would grow us and change us, and that you would would bind these truths to our hearts, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. One of the reasons I love John's gospel and one of the reasons many people love John's gospel is because he tells us why he wrote the book. He doesn't leave us guessing. He doesn't leave that to the to, you know, to be um, questioned. At the very end of John's gospel, he tells us why he wrote what he wrote. He says, I wrote, he says, there's many other things I could write about. There's many other works that Jesus did, but these things that I wrote These things are written so that you may believe, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So we see very early in John that the reason he wrote these things was so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life, life eternal, unchanging life with 
God. And we see in this passage this morning the great promises of Christ for His sheep, for those that are believing and trusting in Him, in the preserving power of God that is exerted towards His saints in sustaining them, in in comforting them, and giving them great hope. But we'll see that this is set against a dark backdrop of unbelief. And so if you want to follow along with me in your outline, this morning we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the unbelief of the people. The unbelief of the people. We're going to see that in verses 22 through 25. Then we'll look in verse 26 at the reason for their unbelief. Jesus gives us the reason for their unbelieving hearts. And then finally, we'll look at the sustaining power of God in this great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So we see in verse 22 and 23 that this has taken place some months after what we looked at last week. So after Jesus is describing this idea that there's one flock, that there's one shepherd, we see that this is taking place a couple months after these events in the wintertime. And John tells us this is during the Feast of Dedication. During the Feast of Dedication. This would have taken place in Jerusalem near the temple. And this is very interesting because this is not one of the Old Testament feasts. This is not recorded in the Old Testament anywhere. This is the Feast of Dedication, which took place in in between the two writings of the Old and New Testament. So the Feast of Dedication, you might know it as Hanukkah. If you've ever heard of Hanukkah, this eight-day celebration, this is what's known as the Feast of Dedication. And this was a festival wherein the people would commemorate the rededication of the temple during the second century BC. This is in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And during this period, there was a pagan ruler, a Syrian king, that had invaded Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. The temple was this place where the people would go to worship God, offer sacrifices, it was a holy place. And this pagan ruler takes over Jerusalem, desecrates the temple, erects an altar to a pagan god, sacrifices a pig on the altar. If you know anything about Jewish culture, pigs were considered unclean. So this is a defiling of the temple like none other. And so this feast was a celebration of the time when the Jews led a rebellion, rededicated the temple, and created this feast in celebration of that event. They were celebrating this rededication of the temple. And so we see Jesus here is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon during this feast. And you might say to yourself, why are these details in here? Why is John telling us this? Well, I think John does this for a very specific reason. If you've been with us for a little bit, John uses the feast of the Jews as these sort of literary markers throughout his gospels. Gospel, not gospel. <laughs> John's gospel, gospel, no. Gospel, right? Throughout his gospel, he has these feasts that mark different, different instances, marking all the way back to John 5. You see the feast, of the, the feast of the Passover. You see the Feast of Tabernacles. And so these not only sort of mark out different times in the ministry of our Lord, but we've seen how John uses them to bring out the fulfillment of Christ's types and shadows from the Old Testament. That with the feast of Passover going on, Jesus proclaims, my body will be broken, my blood will be shed as a fulfillment of the true Passover lamb. 
We see Jesus saying he's the fulfillment of the Passover. During the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus shows us that he is God incarnate, the one that has tabernacled among his people, dwelt with them in flesh and blood. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. But what's interesting, I think, about this feast, especially because it's not recorded in the Old Testament, this feast at this particular time, as we've seen, as we've read the passage, it is not pagan rulers who are seeking to desecrate this temple in Jerusalem, but we see that it is the Jews themselves who are seeking to desecrate the true temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. That they have, in the previous passage, called him a demonic. They've called him one who is demon-possessed. By the end of this passage, we'll see that they're picking up stones to stone him. And so it is no pagan ruler that is defiling the temple. It is the Jews themselves who are trying to kill the true temple, Christ the Lord. And so we see in this passage the unbelief of the people, the hardness of heart that these Jews have towards Christ. And we see this reflected in their question. If you want to look with me, at verse 24, we see this unbelief reflected in their question to Jesus, which on the surface, maybe you read this and you say, well, that sounds pretty innocent, pretty harmless. They're just trying to know if Jesus is the Christ, right? What's the big deal? These are the only words they say. But we see that there's much more going on here than innocent questions. Really, this question is full of lies and deceit. They say in verse 24, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. One commentator pointed out that in this question, there are two lies. There are two lies in this question. The first lie is that these people are somehow uncertain or in suspense about who Jesus is. If we've read the previous verses, we've seen that they've called him possessed by a demon. (laughs) They've called him not a true prophet. They've tried to stone him already in John's gospel. They're not uncertain about who Jesus is. They have made up their minds. They know who they think he is. And so they're lying here. They're not really uncertain. But the second lie is that Christ is somehow the cause of their uncertainty. That Christ is somehow the cause of their uncertainty. That He is the reason that they're not believing. That it's His fault somehow that He is not being forthcoming about who He is. And so it's here that we see the darkness and the blindness of their unbelief. That throughout John's Gospel, what has Jesus done but proclaim who He is? (laughs) He said, before Abraham was, I am. You can't get a more clear statement than that. Before Abraham existed, I am. He also says in John 6, as we read this morning, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. He's not playing coy about who he is. He's not trying to hide his person and his work. He has done nothing but show evidence after evidence that He is in fact the Christ, the promised Messiah, the special anointed servant of the Lord. And He's testified throughout John's Gospel to who He is and what He came to do. And so we see this reflected in Jesus' statement in verse 25. He says, I told you. I told you, and you do not believe. 
Jesus has performed sign after sign, work after work, bearing witness to who he is and what he came to do, and yet they do not believe. They've rejected him, and they've rejected his word. And if we step back from this passage for a moment, we see that this type of unbelief is is no different in our day. It's no less true that there are many witnesses and evidences to God and his gospel and to the glory of Christ, and yet people reject it. One commentator, A.W. Pink, says this, There are innumerable tokens for the evidence and existence of a divine creator sufficient to render all men without excuse, yet this has not banished atheism from the earth. There are a thousand evidences that the Holy Scriptures are the inspired Word of God, yet there are multitudes who do not believe. There is a great host of unimpeachable witnesses who testify daily to the Saviorhood of the Lord Jesus, yet the great majority of men continue in their sins. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is why? Why are there so many people that do not believe the gospel of Christ? Why do these people that have seen sign after sign and work after work, they've seen Jesus multiply loaves, they've seen him heal men, why do they not believe? And Jesus here gives a very sobering answer to this question. In verse 26, he says, You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. This leads us to our second point this morning, the reason for their unbelief. That Jesus here gets to the root of the issue. He gets to the heart of what's going on, the grounds and the reason for their unbelief. And we see that Jesus says it is not for lack of evidence, it's not for a lack of witnesses, and it's not a lack in Christ, in his person, in his work. Jesus tells them that the lack is in them. He says they are not of his sheep. We read this in verse 26. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Notice he did not say, because you do not believe, therefore you are not among my sheep. But he said, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep that the reason they do not believe, that the reason that they have not trusted in Christ is because they are not among Christ's sheep, among his people. Or you could say it like this, they believe not in Christ because they belong not to Christ. They remain obstinate in their pride, in their unbelief. As John will say in chapter 3, that they love the darkness rather than the light, and they are spiritually blind darkened in their understanding and and in darkened in their unbelief. And so the truth is, as we look at this sobering response from our Lord, we, many questions come to our mind. And the truth is this morning is that if you and I were left to our sin, if we were left to our own devices, this would be us. <laughs> this would be us in our state of sin, that if we were left to our own devices, we would be just as obstinate as these people darkened into our sin. And so the question this morning is not why is not everyone a sheep, but the question this morning is why is anyone a sheep? Why is anyone saved? Why does anyone believe 
the gospel of Christ. And the answer we see this morning is that it's only because of the grace and mercy of God alone. And we see in the following verses this great contrast between the unbelief of the people and the true sheep of Christ that he is able to save. And we see attached to this the promise that all those that he came to save will not only be saved, but they will persevere to the end that God will sustain his people. And so this brings us to our final and third point this morning, the perseverance of the saints, the perseverance of the saints that we read in verse 27. Jesus says this in contrast to those that do not believe. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We see here that Christ's sheep They not only hear His voice, they are not only known by Him, but we see that they follow Christ. And so we see here the marks of true sheep. That the true sheep of the shepherd, they hear the voice of Christ, of the good shepherd in the gospel, and the proclamation of the good news of what Christ has done. They are known by Him. They hear His voice. It says in verse 3 that He calls them by name. They follow Him alone, submitting to His guidance, walking in His ways, obeying His commands. And the question is, why? And we see, He says, because they are My sheep, a people for His own possession, called by His Word and Spirit into the fold of God, not the strongest people, not the smartest people, not the wisest people, but His sheep given to Him by the Father, united to Him by faith, and given life by the Holy Spirit. And we see this expanded further in verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life. Life everlasting. Life eternal. Not for those that earned it. Not for those that worked for it. But He says, I give them eternal life that we see in this passage the free gift of salvation, that Christ came to give eternal life to His people as a gift. And so we can say that salvation is all of grace, all of grace, all of grace. That all of salvation from beginning to end is a work of the gracious and merciful God. But not only is the Son able to save them and give them eternal life, but we see that He promises to preserve His people to the very end. We see in verse 28, He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So this is not a type of life that can be lost or taken away. It's not a type of life that can perish at all. Jesus says, I give them life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That the promise of Christ for His people is not only eternal life begun, but eternal life kept, consummated, brought to completion. What does Paul say in Philippians 1, verse 6? He says, 
He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That this is what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or eternal security um, is another way we can call this. That this is the promise that the people of God will be brought through all their trials, all their temptations, all their tribulations in this life, and they will be brought to glory. That no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, not because of their work, but because of the work of the triune God. What does Jesus say? They will never perish. They will never be cast out. That no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, out of His hand. And so, sorry, I I messed that up, but it's because Jesus refers to both. He says, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And then in verse 29, we see the double security that the people of God have. That they're not only never snatched from the Son's hand, but we see ultimately that they're never snatched from the Father's hand. We see this double security that is given. That it is the unity of the triune God preserving and keeping His people. How does He do this? How does God keep His sheep? How does He protect them from these people? We see that He protects them from the wolves of false teachers and shepherds that seek to carry away God's people. We see that He protects and preserves them from the poison of false doctrine and heresy that seeks to lead God's people astray to another gospel. And we also see the preserving power of God that He keeps His people from the dark valleys of temptation, of sin, and trials in this life that would seek to crush God's people and 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 extinguish their light. And we see that God is able to do this, and He's willing to do this. He's not just able to do this, He is going to do this, not because of the greatness of His people, but because of the unchanging love of the Father. Not because of their works, but because of the perfect intercession of Christ and their union with Him. Not because of their strength, but the strength and abiding of the Spirit. And so because of this passage and many others like it, we can say that the perseverance of God's people is sure. It's certain. It's not up for debate. It's not a question. It's sure. It is infallible. It is certain. That God is able to save His people, that all of His sheep will be brought to glory. They will face trials and temptations in this life but they are held in the hand of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the almighty power of the one true God. And we can say with Paul, like he says in Romans 8, that who shall separate us from the love of God? And the answer that he gives is no one. No one is able to separate us from the hand of God. Jesus says, I and the Father are one, one in essence, one in perfection, one in power, one in being. There is one God in three, in three persons keeping and preserving His people. And so as we walk away from this passage this morning and as we seek to make application of John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30, a couple things we need to look at before we can really start to make application here. The first thing we need to do is address some objections and misconceptions about this doctrine 
of the perseverance of the saints. Some objections and misconceptions about what this means that God preserves his people to the end. The first misconception is this, that this doctrine is often confused with what some people call once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. This is often what is confused with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, but we see this is sort of an oversimplified, incomplete statement. And it usually, the thinking usually goes like this. As long as someone prayed a prayer, as long as someone raised their hand, as long as someone had an ecstatic religious experience, then they must be saved. That they are safe, there's nothing for them to worry about, it doesn't matter how they live their life, it doesn't matter what they do, that as long as they did this thing that they can kind of show, then therefore they will be saved and they have no, nothing to worry about. They are all good. They don't need to show any fruit of salvation. They don't need to show any evidence of God's saving work in their life. They prayed the prayer. They did the thing. And it's sort of like a get out of hell free card. We see that this is not what the doctrine of assurance is. Not the, do- sorry, the doctrine of eternal security, the perseverance of the saints. That Christ says in these verses, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me, and they follow me, that the true sheep will follow the shepherd. We see in other passages that true sheep have been given new hearts with new desires and new affections that seek to obey Christ, and that will produce fruit that shows that God is at work in them. So this is the first misconception. And you might think of other objections, or maybe there's even some objections in your own head that are running through. What about the warning passages in Scripture that seem to sound like someone could have salvation and then lose it? Or what about those that we know in our life that maybe claimed Christ for a season? Maybe they were walking with the Lord, but they ultimately fell away. Did Christ lose them? Did, did Christ, did they fall out of his hand? How do we understand these things? And the answer is no. They did not fall out of Christ's hands. We see the promise here that no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. So how do we understand these things? I think a great place to go is sort of a commentary on this passage is 1 John chapter 1, verse 19. John says that those that did not continue in Christ... Those that did not continue among us, they left the church, they went out from us, and he says, why? Why why did they go out from us? Because Christ lost them? Because they somehow fell out of the hands of the God of the universe? No. He says, they went out from us because they were not of us. That they were not truly Christ's sheep. They were not saved by him. We see in our passage that no one is able to pluck them out of Christ's hands, that God's people have true perseverance. And so while we see in this passage that there are many difficult and sobering truths, we also see that there is great comfort for God's people amidst the terrible trials and temptations of this life. We see in this passage this morning that God has a promise for His people that He is able to save them. He's able to save them, preserve them, and keep them to the end. That all those in Christ 
will be saved. And it is God who will preserve them. It is God alone who will preserve them. Not their strength, not the gritting of their teeth, not the white knuckling of obedience, but God at work in them. Because they are united to Christ and they receive the benefits of Christ, the one who persevered for them. And even though the world, the flesh, and the devil will seek to destroy God's people, Christ will hold them fast. Trials and temptations may surround us as God's people on every corner, on every side, even to the point, we see this in Scripture, even to the point where the temptation of Satan and the world causes God's people to fall into many and grievous sins to the point where even some of God's people might continue in grievous sins for a season. They might have their hearts hardened. They might have their consciences wounded, hurting others and hurting themselves. They might have a time in their life where sin seems to be winning, that God's people can go through seasons of dark sin and grievous error. And we look to the Scriptures in, in King David. He's the one, the great king, the great shepherd of God's people in the Old Testament. And what does he do? He commits adultery. He, he has the woman's husband killed. This is a saint of God committing adultery and murder, and yet we see God is able to preserve them to the end. We read in our confession of faith that even for those that go through trials of grievous sin, it says, yet their repentance will be renewed. That God will turn their face again to Him, that they will be preserved, and that no one is able to snatch them out of His hands. As we sang this morning, He'll never, no never, no never, forsake. And so how do we apply this great truth that we've learned about this morning? I think one of the ways that we can do that, one of the ways that we learn in Scripture that God preserves His people is through Christ's church and the ordinary means of grace. How does God preserve His people? How is He going to keep you till the end? He's going to use His church and the means of grace. We saw this in our call to worship this morning. The psalmist is tempted by the wickedness of the people. People are sinning. People are prosperous. They're doing well. They're doing great. I mean, the wicked people are doing everything wrong, and yet they're getting everything that they want. And he's tempted to follow after them. But what is it that brings him back? What is it that turns him to repentance It says, when I went into the sanctuary of God, this idea of going to the house of the Lord, going to God's people, to the means of grace. What do we see in our catechism? That it is the church of God is the ordinary way where God's people are gathered, protected, and preserved. That that is how God is going to keep his people to the end. God uses means. And so, as God's people, we must not neglect these means of grace. Corporate worship on the Lord's Day, the preaching of the Word of God, coming to the Lord's table, being nourished and fed by these means. This is where we are encouraged by one another and encourage one another, where our faith is strengthened, and even where we are examining ourselves. 
in 2 Corinthians, Paul will say, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Peter will go on to say, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That this idea of the perseverance of the saints, far from creating laziness and pride in God's people or eliminating our personal responsibility and duty, it does the opposite. It actually, in every way, strengthens our diligence. It strengthens our fervency to attend God and the things of His Word. And that's why Paul can say in Philippians, he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's basically saying, remain diligent. Attend God's Word and the things of God. But if that's where that verse ended, if he just said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, good luck. We would be brought right back to where we were before. We would be brought back to this sort of covenant of works where it was up to us in order to gain perseverance. But we see that that is not where Paul ends the verse. He goes on to say, he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? How? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That the God of the universe is at work in your salvation. No one is able to snatch you out of his hands. As Christians, we will struggle. We will fall into sin. We will fail. But thanks be to God who renews our repentance and leads us back into the fold of Christ. And so this morning, we can look at God's promises and take comfort. We can lean on Him in times of trials. We can remember the gospel of grace, asking the Spirit for help in times of need, acknowledging our weakness, and we can even acknowledge the strength of our temptations and the strength of our enemy, but we are ultimately resting on the power of God. And so I wanted to end this morning with a quote from John Calvin that I think sums up a lot of this and shows us our need to acknowledge our own weakness, but we see the resting on the power of God. I'll close with this. He says, We are surrounded indeed by great and powerful adversaries. And so great is our weakness that we are at every moment in imminent danger of death. But because of him who keeps his sheep and the one who is more powerful than all, we have no reason to tremble as if our life were in any danger. Why? In short, our salvation is certain. Why? Because it is the hand of God that holds us. For our faith is weak and we are prone to waver. But God, who has taken us under his protection, under the shadow of his wing, is sufficient and able to scatter by his breath alone all the foes and all our adversities. So we see that God is able to preserve his people by the breath of his word alone. He is able to save us and scatter our enemies. We have a sure and steadfast foundation this morning to rest on. God will preserve his people, and that's our hope this morning. So let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you uh, for your grace, for your mercy in Christ. We thank you for this great truth of the perseverance of the saints, that even though um, our hearts may fail us, our flesh may fail us, Lord, 
we have the great promise that you are able to keep us to the end. That we will fall into many temptations and trials. That we will have everything in heaven on earth seeking to undermine our faith and seeking to come against us. But we have the God of the universe holding us in His hand. Father, Son, and Spirit at work in our salvation from beginning to end. And so we have a great hope this morning. And so I pray that for your people this morning, you would, they would hear the words of Christ and they would rest on Him alone. And for those that do not know you, Lord, that they would believe in the gospel, as John says, that they would see the glory of Christ and they would believe in Him and be saved and have everlasting life that will never perish. We pray this morning that you would lead us by your grace, that you would strengthen us this morning, that when we are weak, you would strengthen us. And if we are proud, Lord, you would humble us. We ask and pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.